now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In this season, we will cover content given at the NIJ Forensic Technology Center of Excellence's Impression Pattern and Trace Evidence Symposium. In Episode 5 of the IPTI season, Just Science interviews John Vanderkolk from the Indiana State Laboratory. In a previous episode, Vanderkolk discusses the term nature's patterns. Now, he will discuss the philosophy behind the term and how he uses his fracture examination workshop to teach these ideas. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals, and I hope we'll be able to enlighten you today. We have our guest today is John Vanderkolk, who is with the Indiana State Police Laboratory. He is the manager of the Indiana State Police Laboratory in Fort Wayne, and he has been an Indiana State Police trooper. He has been a crime scene technician, a criminalist as a at the same time that he was a trooper, he's done everything from latent prints and shoe and tire prints to firearm and tool mark and fracture and physical comparative examinations. So truly a drag of all trades. He's also been helping the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence on a human factors source book. He is uh, helping us this week by presenting a workshop at Impression Pattern Trace Evidence uh, Symposium, Fracture Examination Workshop. And so this is going to be looking at the patterns of fracture examination and the examination process itself. And we're going to be talking about the workshop and about some of the ideas that John is presenting at the workshop. Welcome to the podcast again, John. Thanks for having me, John. Why don't you tell us in general what the Fracture Examination Workshop consisted of? The workshop involved the classic lecture part of any workshop, you know, the philosophy behind why I believe fracture examinations can take place in forensic comparative examination, a little bit about the history of forensic fracture examination, you know, how long has it been around, what disciplines do it, and then there will be many practical exercises for the participants. They will break and tear some of their own items try to reassemble them, knowing the ground truth that they broke it, and then they reassemble it. They will take pieces that they broke, like one half of it, give it to the neighbor of a like item, see how well it fits or doesn't fit with the piece they broke, and we'll see how pieces fit or correspond or don't correspond, even though they had a similar manufacturing process. In the examination process of fractures, we will study both natural items and unnatural items. The unnatural would be anything we make in the manufacturing process, such as turn signal lenses for cars, spoons, knives, things that we make with design features to it that are repeated. We don't want to buy things that are handmade because they would cost too much money or not be practical. We like buying repetitive items that are cheaper to make and are mass produced. You know, I don't want to buy a car that's handmade. Those went away a long time ago. I like the repeated features that I can afford. But within the repeated features, there's going to be the uncontrolled natural features, the arrangement of the molecules in there. As those things break and the bonds are separated between the molecules, the textured surface will not be recreated in a different fracture of a like item. 
So we're going to study philosophy. We're going to do practical exercises and reassemble pieces. That's very interesting. So the first thing that comes to mind is, is that I'm thinking of my windshield. The windshield of my car is currently broken. It got hit by a pebble or something several weeks ago. So there was a particular fracture that occurred at the point of impact, and it stayed there for a while. And then this past weekend, much to my chagrin, there was a propagation, a crack propagation line that occurred across the bottom of the windshield. So the original impact, let's just say instead of it was a pebble, let's say somebody hit it with a hammer. And that is, in some respects, an unnatural act, right, against an unnatural object. Uncontrolled, yep. Yep. I would argue that the propagation crack, though, is more natural in the sense that all propagation cracks have a similar geometry to them, right? Um, And therefore, it's much more difficult to say that if you had that, the two pieces of that windshield, it's still one piece now, but if you had the two pieces of the windshield out at some point, that propagation crack probably wouldn't be able to be uniquely identified in the same way that the original hit against the windshield might be, because propagation cracks are so similar in glass. You're going to say the generality of the propagation crack can be repeated in another fractured windshield, the general tendencies. Yeah, so I'm thinking about it from a materials perspective again. So my doctorate's in material science, but uh, it was mostly in semiconductor work. But I hung out with a lot of, like, ceramicists. Now, ceramics are a little different from glass, ceramics being microcrystalline, glass being amorphous, and so they have a different structure on the uh, micro level. And so the way in which cracks propagate through them are different, but there is some generics to them as well. And in general, you know, you might have a particular kind of concave look of a crack once it propagates in glass that all glass is going to show. So on the similar language, one of the philosophies that I teach is let's talk fingerprint language when we talk fracture language, level one, two, and three measurement. When you have a propagated fracture in glass with a similar force that hit that point of impact, let's say, level one measurement would be, let's say, a spiderweb type shape or linear type shape but that line is not straight. It might be close to straight, but it's not going to be straight. I'm going to teach there's no such thing as straight lines in nature. Straight lines are a mathematical term of measurement. If you measure it with a ruler, it's not going to be straight. Well, let's stop you there, because straight is also depending upon your measurement system, right? So it may not be straight, but my measurement system may not be good enough to see the crookedness that's in in any propagation. Okay, so I'm going to fall back on the quality-quantity aspect of the fracture itself. If it's very close to a straight line or very close to a smooth curve, I'm going to shy away from making a conclusive judgment about it, most likely. First of all, I'm going to say, like what I learned at fingerprints, show me the print, show me the fracture. So on that, I don't use a ruler as my comparative tool when I measure a fracture. I use the opposing piece. How well does this standard, where I know the source from, compare to the unknown source from the crime scene? The standard I use is not going to be the ruler with the straight edge. It's going to be the opposing piece. So I don't really use the ruler strategy. So when we talked before, we've done a podcast before, you mentioned Dr. Bustaros. And he said, I don't like you. Exactly. I'm <laughs> doing that. So when he says he doesn't want you to, to butt one thing up against another, how do you deal with the matching then? The measurements that he's going to use with his technology, he did not like it, nor did his research assistants like it. When I took two fractured pieces of knife blade, 
and physically place them together. They said the microcrystal structure will change as, as I place those two pieces together. He probably could document that using SEM or some other kind of technique. The, te yeah. the mm -hmm. technology that he uses in our research would measure that change. Mm -hmm. The level that I'm measuring in fracture examination, the physical fit is another aspect of the visual fit across the edges. So I'm also looking forward to feeling that physical fit of those microstructures coming together. Yes, for his measurement, the sensitivity of his measurement will change the measurement as I press those two pieces together. But I'm still gonna do it most likely to physically put those two pieces of metal together because that's part of my examination process. I have not come to the level of using his technology yet in my examination process. But on that, um, one of my slides in my workshop is an image of glass using some kind of high-level technology to image the glass. Mm -hmm. And even in that image, there are no straight lines. There's little elements, I'm going to call it, of glass within. And in those imaging pictures, there's no straight lines, there are no smooth edges, there's amorphous shapes of glass within the glass. Interesting. How much have you tried to put two things together that did not fit? So how do you know? Because, again, I would argue that there will be times when, if you took my two pieces of windshield again along the propagation line, that I might be able to match a fair section of that propagation line against some other windshield's propagation line, especially as it goes further and further into the propagation and away from the original point of impact. So how do you know that just fitting it together means that it's a match, or are you saying consistent with in your description as opposed to identification? I'm going to fall back on the same fingerprint challenge I get. How do I know? I'm going to say, show me the two pieces of glass you're talking about, because I can't do comparative science without working with the two images or the two pieces I'm conducting the exam on. It's to the exclusion, theoretically, of all other matches. But on a practical basis, no, because you could practically, within your ability to mush them together, basically, and determine whether they are a true match or not, there will be other ones that would match, even though there is a uniqueness there. I also have to be willing to walk away from the comparisons in which there's doubt or the inconclusive ones. I have to walk away from the gray area of doubt. <laughs> mm -hmm. On that, I have to walk away from the inconclusive. I have to be willing to accept the inconclusive. Let's get into this philosophy idea here, and I'm just going to read it straight out from your description, and that is, natural patterns cannot be repeated, unnatural patterns can be repeated. Now, let's take it one step at a time. Natural versus unnatural. By unnatural, your previous description seems to indicate artificial or made by human hands. Is that how you would define unnatural? How do you define unnatural? Unnatural is like a turn signal lens. It's made in a mold. Shapes are repeated over and over again, interchanging parts. They're designed specifically to have the same critical measurements so they fit no matter what. If it's the same make and model of the car, this turn signal lens should fit on that. So it's the intent to make repeated patterns that fit elsewhere. Now, guns are meant to be all exactly the same, but they do have features that are not repeated. And so far, even though some have come very close to being, you know, beyond the limit of detection, this still is possible even with consecutively manufactured barrels with very sophisticated manufacturing processes. 
especially if you're using a, like a confocal microscope or something like that, you can tell the differences between consecutively manufactured barrels. So just being unnatural doesn't mean that they're going to have perfect repetition even so. There is, there is no artificial process that isn't pure mathematical or pure conceptual that is the same each time. The critical measurements are repeated. The fine imperfections within the bore of the gun are not critical in the manufacturing process. Would you classify those as natural processes that are on top of the unnatural process? Yes, or okay. within, top or within. So as they design the width, direction, and depth of the lands and grooves within the bore of the gun, direction of the twist, how many, six left, five right, those are predetermined design specifications that they intend to repeat over and over again amongst all the guns they're going to make down the series. Within that, as they produce the fine details of the lands and grooves and the direction of twist, whether it's a cutting process or a pressing process, the fine details of the metal fracture, the metal abrasions, the metal cutting, will produce the natural uncontrolled variation from one gun barrel to the other. So the fine details within the lands and grooves will be the natural variation. The manufactured design specifications are the unnatural commonalities. Yeah, so I mean, this is even true no matter almost any human-created object is going to be like that. The One of the most perfect things people make are the semiconductor chips and computers, and yet the imperfections in those chips, even though they're very minor, will change the pattern of the signals that come out of that chip. So you can actually determine down to identification if you spent enough time in terms of the analysis. Which uh, particular computer chip is producing a particular signal? So in that case, uh, yeah, there is a natural variation on top of all unnatural processes. Is that where you're coming from? I would say I agree with that statement. I, I agree with that statement. On that, with your computer chips, I've been trying to, on my own, view images of graphene. Graphene is a layer of carbon atoms, one atom thick, some kind of film of carbon atoms. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a fascinating object to me. But as I see these images of graphene, they are not smooth. It's bumpy and contoured. The contour doesn't repeat itself in the images. Even a computer model of graphene was not smooth and flat. It was a wavy contour that was not necessarily repeated in the computer image. So I'm finding it fascinating that the images that I'm seeing of graphene are not smooth and the elements of graphene are not lined up in straight lines or anything. We're going to get into some even more deep material science. You're making my day. Uh, of course, all crystalline materials follow particular patterns, right? So they'll each have one of 14 brave lattices. They'll each have a particular kind of arrangement of the atoms within the lattice. And if there are a single crystal in particular, those will, if it's a two-dimensional crystal, as in graphene, or if it's a multi, you know, three-dimensional crystal, uh, these will all be in a particular well-defined, repeated pattern. The process and the structure that they want to be in is going to be very, very repeatable. But it's true. You know, if, it isn't just if you have an impurity. It's also you could have a place where all of a sudden 
the atoms didn't come together exactly right, and so you have what would be called a vacancy, for example. You have a missing carbon atom somewhere. It's going to stress all of the carbon atoms around it in a way that's going to cause the kind of variation that you see. And if it isn't formed at zero Kelvin, which nothing is, at absolute zero, then there have to be some of those. Just the fact that it's being formed at a temperature above absolute zero means that there's a, the thermodynamics is such that there's got to be variation. It's interesting because both statements are true, but I think they're arguable. I think that the natural processes want to be repeatable as much as unnatural processes. But you're talking about it in terms of patterns. I'd have to give that some thought as to the difference between the process, what the natural stuff is trying to do, versus what actually happens when it comes together. Okay, let's go back from fracture exam and nature back to friction skin. Mm-hmm. Okay, I start out with the same DNA in my little developing body, and it says form friction skin on the left hand versus the right hand. Why is the friction skin on the left hand not in the same measurable pattern? I don't care about classification terminology. Sure. But why is the actual pattern of any of the friction skin on my left hand not the same as the actual pattern of skin on my right hand? No matter where I measure, it's different. If I reverse the image of my right hand impression and make it look like a left hand, they're different. Nature strives to replicate itself, I would say. It says form that skin there. Yeah. But the timing is different. The critical sequences and interferences and influences are slightly different. The actual molecules are going to be different. Then skin cells replicate, skin cells replicate, skin cells. And that's one of the regions our skin ages. Nature cannot reproduce itself exactly, whether it's in a crystal, whether it's in a, another molecule, wood, whatever. Nature doesn't replicate itself exactly. So in the skin cells, even our friction skin ages. The generating cells strive to replicate the cell it's replacing, but it cannot do so perfectly. If I believe nature's patterns are unique, which I do, we have to age in our skin. And that's the imperfect replication of nature's patterns. There's some fundamental ideas there that I think sometimes we ignore. Again, before the podcast, we were talking a little bit about how uh, forensic science needs to be worrying about a little bit of the scientific philosophy. I think science needs to as well. I think we've lost in basic science, fundamental science, the ability to think philosophically. And what you're talking about is really, in my view, at the core of what we have failed to appreciate in modern science, and that is the fundamental chaotic nature of the universe. But I think there's a fundamental truth of what you're talking about. We mentioned the thermodynamics of crystalline formation. We've mentioned the, the variation in biological systems. But there's also a fundamental statistics in quantum mechanics. It's right at the foundation of physics. Einstein was skeptical of this. He famously said, you know, God does not play dice with the universe. But in fact, God chose to play dice with the universe. In fact, there is a fundamental statistical character to every physical process. That's what quantum mechanics really says to some extent philosophically. And what you're saying is that that is true not only at the level of quantum mechanics where things are either going you know, very tiny or whatever else it might be, but also at a macro level, the level that we can measure, we can measure and that the forensic scientist can look at, right? Basically, I'm worried about what I can measure with my eyes. Like if I were to do a fracture exam under a scanning electron microscope, the images are going to overwhelm me and I'm yeah. not even going to know what I'm looking at. So you can measure things too closely because there will be no such thing as a perfect match. Right. Like when I 
alter the crystal structure of the metal when I put them together at that level. For me, I'm measuring things too closely visually that way. I, I need the, more of the macro measurement for me. So I've been looking at, in the last year or so, I've had two researchers come to me with new live scan for fingerprints. And they're gorgeous. I mean, they produce images that are so detailed. It's really, really impressive. But they have that exact same problem. They're giving too much information. They're information beyond where it's valuable to the forensic examiner from an analytical perspective. When we went from latent prints compared to ink prints and latent prints to live scan, is holy cow, these live scan look too different now. You know, the early <laughs> days of live scan printing. Yeah. So is it too different and too far away from the natural latent print we're looking at? So that could be a struggle in comparative science. So one of the things you present in the workshop is the idea of a flowchart depicting the commonalities across, is it okay to call them disciplines at yes. this point? So what is in the flowchart? What are the commonalities across disciplines that come out of this thinking? I would like for all of comparative science to be explained more simply. Basically, start at the top, the object. What is the source of the impression? Is it a natural item, friction skin, or is it unnatural, a shoe sole? That's the first separation, natural, unnatural. A few commonalities, persistency. What's the persistency of the features on that object? All they have to do is be persistent enough, kind of like the blister on the skin mm -hmm. or a paper cut on the skin. If it's in both impressions, I'm using it. Sure. If it healed and is gone, I have to consider why is it not in one impression when it is the other. Bubble gum on the bottom of a shoe, how persistent is that? So persistency is a big part of it. And then on that, level one, two, and three detail. I could use that description of measurement no matter what discipline I'm talking about. Level one, two, and three of repeatable features, details in my fired bullet. Level one, two, and three in fingerprint impressions level one, two, and three, and shoe print impressions. I can do level one, two, and three measurements of the details of the repeated features in a shoe print. I can do level one, two, and three measurement of the random unique features. So why details. level one, two, and three as opposed to using language like class, subclass, and individual? Because the word class is defined so differently amongst the disciplines it is downright confusing. <laughs> okay. Sure enough, yeah. Take a look at the shoe print definition of class. They throw wear on the bottom of a shoe into the definition of class characteristics in which wear cannot be a class characteristic because it's an uncontrolled natural phenomenon of how the rubber sole is eroded, uncontrolled fracture, abrasion. So on that, the shoe print community has in their current documents they're calling it general wear. I don't know when general wear transitions to real wear, but they talk about it in lack of clarity in the impression being a class characteristic. Lack of clarity does not transition the features of the soul from repeated features to unique features. Lack of impression has nothing to do with the actual features on the soul. So you always go back to the source. The soul has repeated features, which are commonly referred to as class characteristics. And then the wear and tear, nicks and gouges are the unnatural or check the natural events that occur on the bottom of the soul. So if anything, I would like to abandon the word class characteristics because in fingerprints, friction skin, they don't even have the word class characteristics in their glossary of Sweet Fast, soon to be OSAC maybe. 
but class characteristics and fingerprints talks about the general patterns of grouping natural patterns together. So they throw all these rules in what's a loop, world, or arch and make that a class characteristic. Class characteristics define amongst and throughout the forensic comparative sciences has so many different variations of definitions that is a downright confusing term. Sure, yeah. It comes out of, some of it's historical, some of it's relevant to the physics or biology in question. But at level one and two and three, I've never seen outside of the fingerprint community. There it makes perfect sense to me. You know, level, and I think level three is sweat, you know, Texture. Yeah, and that kind of thing. So how do you define level one, two, and three across disciplines in your case? Very good. Let's go with shoe prints. Think of level one, two, and three as the level of measurement. So I'm going to be measuring details of repeated features in a shoe print, details of random or unique features in a shoe print. So level one, I have round circles versus herringbone pattern. Boom. It's different. Or I have herringbone versus herringbone. Level one. Okay, now I'm going to do level two measurement of the herringbone, the repeated features. I'm going to do level two and see what the measurement of the peaks and valleys are of that herringbone. Is the herringbone, let's just say, two centimeters by two centimeters by two centimeters, or three by three by three as I do the mm-hmm. measurements? So that's level two measurement. The length of each leg of the herringbone would be level two. The length of the ridge, the path of the ridge is level two beyond ending ridges and bifurcations. Too many people say level two is ending ridges and bifurcations. Level two is actually the path that is being measured. Where it happens to end and bifurcate is an anchor of that path. So level two on the herringbone is how long is each little aspect of the herringbone. Then I can do level three. Which mold did this herringbone come out of? Sometimes, like if you look at Converse Chuck Taylor All-Star shoes, you might have a texture imparted into the sole of the shoe. Some may be smooth texture, some may have a texture to it. So on that, if you have texture along the herring bones, I can measure, is this texture at that location the same texture, even though it's a repeated feature? Because of the mold itself has a texture to it. So how closely am I measuring the impression? How closely can I measure it? So I can do the same thing with unique random features on the bottom of a shoe. I may have a, a hole in the shoe from a tack, but the tack is no longer there. Level one. In that impression, I see a hole there. Okay, I'm going to have to measure it closely. How close is that hole to the apex of those herring bones or the valley of the herring bones? How close is the hole to the herring bones on the other shoe impression, on the shoe itself? And then if I can measure it closely enough, I may see there's a little tear in that hole going off at 7.30 if I were to do a clock position on it. I didn't notice that crack going off that hole before, but now I do. Ooh, there's that crack and that impression right there at 7.30. But if I overlay them, I can see that crack in that non-round circle of a pinhole in that same random event on the bottom of the shoe. So how closely do I measure that hole? Level one, oh, there's a hole. Level two, it's close to the neighbors. Level three, there's texture to that hole. Since we're picking on the footwear people, it's actually level one, two, and three with respect to whichever decision you're trying to make. So a footwear examiner might be just trying to say it's this Nike model, or as the Brits say, Nike. So it's the Nike, Nike you know, one, two, three, four shoe. And there's levels one, two, and three at that level of decision making. What mold did it come out of? Because 
Yeah. There may be numerous molds for size nine. Versus if you're trying to individualize the shoe and you're looking at features, whether they be wear or other kinds of features that you're looking to individualize, there's going to be level one, two, and three for those features that you're examining on the shoe and the impressions that the shoe leaves. Let's consider the feature in the shoe as level four, the original. The impression will always be less than the original feature on the shoe. So details in the impression, if they're clear enough, can be measured level one, two, or three level, never reaching the quality and quantity of detail as the original feature in the shoe sole itself. Sure. So at some point here, of course, we're going to be trying to quantify And I guess no matter what you do when you get down to level three, because you have a measurement problem as well as a perception and judgment problem, you're always going to be imperfect as well as, and the quantitative model's always going to be imperfect as well. But you could theoretically also separate out how you do the statistical representation of comparisons in the same manner. So it would, you know, theoretically it's a, it's a, it's a construct you could apply both to human judgment and to algorithms. I'm happy to work with the researchers, Dr. Bastaros, how we measure fracture. There are people measuring shoe print impressions. I talk to them, maybe not formally, but informally at least. You know, I'll talk to any type of researchers on how we measure things. I just came from a statistics classroom. I'd be there right now if I wasn't here. <laughs> but I was finding that fascinating. So I'm happy to communicate with people applying some kind of statistical model to how we perceive patterns, how we measure things. So let's take a look at a a practical real-world example where you did a physical comparison in a case involving garbage bags. Tell us about the case and how that worked. The case involved a homicide. Well, it started out as a missing person case. A lady went on a date and never came home to get her children from her parents. So the parents went to police right away and said, our daughter failed to come home from the date. That's not going to happen. So the police said, who would she go on the date on? They said, oh, we need to investigate this one. We know the suspect. We know the guy. Mm-hmm. So they immediately started an investigation. They got a consent to search from the suspect and said, okay, did you go on a date? Yes. What happened? Any sex? Any fights? Anything? What did you do? Well, we went to dinner and a movie, took her home. No conflict, no sex, no fight, nothing. We went home. So there's other aspects to the case, but they got a consent to search. They looked for what might be rape or fight evidence, blood, broken things. So they took the kitchen garbage, seeing what looked like might be blood in the kitchen garbage. Mm-hmm. We don't know what we're looking for, but we're taking it. About six weeks later, the victim's found with a garbage bag tied over her head and her body's decomposing. As a fingerprint examiner, I tried to develop fingerprints on the bag around her head and struck out. Typical. Sure put the bag away. About six weeks after that, so 12 weeks after the event, the agency contacted me and just said, John, you compare things, right? Yeah. Can you compare garbage bags to determine if they came out of the same box or roll or whatever? I said, well, I'm willing to basically compare anything. So on that, they provided me with their preliminary literature, article by the FBI on garbage bag comparison. That's what sparked their interest in the exam request. So I did my homework on garbage bag manufacturing, talked to the authors of the FBI article, to examiners there, even went to the manufacturing company, not knowing who made the evidence garbage bags, but I did go to the mobile chemical company factory in Jacksonville, Illinois at the time, 
talk to their engineers, watch the manufacturing process for garbage bags, plastic bags, any type of plastic bag cool. basically known to so exist. So jealous. <laughs> that would be so cool to see. Um, I believe in understanding the source. How are things made? So I've been to gun factories, tool sure. factories, shoe tire factories. I do my best to study the fetal embryological development of skin. How is the source object made? That's where it all starts. But on the garbage bag, basically the exam request, can you compare the two? So on that, by shining light through the garbage bags, I can see not only the details of the repeated features of the manufacturing process, the design specifications, and the variations that could occur in the design specifications because it's not overly controlled as they make garbage bags, but I also saw the uncontrolled variation, the marbleized pigment variation, the random sizes and positioning of impurities in the plastic bag material, the stretch marks generated off the plastic bag impurities, the metal, maybe paper from the recycling process. I could see stretch marks. I could also see tool marks from the manufacturing process, from the dye and mandrel that might engrave a tube of plastic that is blown into the film of plastic. So what are the repeatable features in the manufacturing process? What are the random, uncontrolled, natural features of the manufacturing process? So with that, by lining up the repeated features, the cut separation, the edges of the bags, the crescent shape of the separation between the bags, and also there was an imperfection of the cutting tool that lined up in just the right spot. But not only did the repeated features carry across from one bag to the other, but the uncontrolled natural features of pigment variations, stretch marks, impurities, cross over from one bag to the other. I was of the opinion, it's not the absolute 100% infallible opinion, but I'm of the opinion these two pieces of plastic bag had been directly connected to and a part of each other end to end at one time. There you go. That's very cool. Remind me, or remind my loved ones, if I'm ever the victim of a crime, to call you in. <laughs> that's a lot of pressure. So, no, that's fascinating because it really is de novo. Had the FBI guys ever actually done a garbage bag comparison, or are they, were they talking theoretically at the time? Really? No, I'm not the first. I'm of the opinion they had done garbage bag comparison. Okay. And then there's another side note on that. When I went to trial, this went to trial with appeals and trials and everything else, hearings and everything else. The final testimony trial, there was an independent expert that had reviewed my work. And then the prosecutor asked me, can I, John, find a rebuttal witness for the independent reviewer of my work? I said, well, the independent examiner is from Milwaukee. Let me call somebody from Milwaukee State Police. So I called the Milwaukee State Police lab and talked to the manager there, and he says, by the chance, I compared garbage bags before in a serial garbage bag case throughout Milwaukee County. I know what you're talking about. Sure. So he had done it. I guess when you're starting to dispose of remains, that the garbage bag tends to be pulled out. Huh? In his case, they never determined a suspect, but he was able to link scene to scene, in some cases bag to bag directly. Sometimes he was willing to say these two bags had been produced on the same machinery, kind of like a tool mark exam that carries over into fracture exam. Yeah. So there's multiple disciplines that blend together in comparative science. So he did come down and testify for us as a rebuttal witness to the independent expert. That's excellent work. And a great example of the fact that when you're a forensic scientist, especially when you're working in some of the pattern evidence disciplines and or things of this nature, 
it's more about the process than it is about the physics. I guess that's kind of what your, your original flowchart and your original concept was, that is looking at natural versus unnatural patterns and taking it apart from there allows you to, to then figure out what the physics and biology are doing and how that's either producing things that tell you that the commonalities and also tell you where the uh, random variations are among objects. It's going to be a very simple flow chart. We should not be 42 independent comparative science disciplines. Basically, we're comparing shapes. Either it's natural patterns or unnatural patterns. And what are the persistencies of those features on the source object? Go forth and compare. That's a very good message. Thank you very much, John, for being with us on the Just Science Podcast. Thanks for having me. Next week, Just Science sits down with Chris Hamburg from Oregon State Police Forensic Services Division and Jeff Jagman from the WSP Crime Laboratory Division in Seattle. They will be discussing the interactive workshop on intra- and inter-variability of footwear test impressions. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.